0: Judge Boyce is finally getting tough in the Lori Vallow, Chad Day Bell matters. Who knew? What is it with Idaho and gag orders? Alec Baldwin, is he criminally responsible? And then finally, our dumb criminal of the day. Let's talk about it. Good day everyone, my name is Scott Reich and welcome to Crime Talk, you know the drill. Subscribe if you have not, like and share if you do. Leave me a comment and hit the little bell for notifications of when we go live or put up new content. You can always listen to this or any previous episode of Crime Talk on any of your favorite podcasting apps. Just simply type in the word Crime Talk. All right, let's support the people that support Crime Talk and today's sponsor is crimetalksearch.com. That's right, if you go to crimetalksearch.com, you can sign up for a background subscription service. Why do you need that? Because you need to know with whom you are dealing with in the world. If you are out there on these dating apps, you need to check something out. If you are meeting people on dating apps, you need to check this person out. Maybe there's somebody that's gonna be coming in contact with your child you want to check them out. And when you go and you sign up for that background subscription service, you can do as many background searches as you desire. And remember, you can cancel at any time, but when you do that search, it literally is prepared while you wait, and a report is emailed to you, and it's gonna have all the information that you're looking for. Does this person have a criminal history? Do they have judgments against them? Do they own property? Are they married? Are they divorced? Maybe they're just telling you that they are. These are the type of things you wanna check out. Go to crimetalksearch.com. I'm telling you, you'll be happy you did. Knowledge is power. All right, let's go ahead and open the record for January 20th of 2023, and let's begin with the docket. First, there is going to be a trial in the Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell matter. Judge Boyce denied a request to postpone the murder trial for Chad Daybell and Lori Vallow and they will not be permitted to have face-to-face meetings or phone calls to prepare for trial. That's right, Judge Stephen Boyce made the ruling during a two and a half hour court hearing Thursday in Fremont County. Now, Lori Vallow Bell appeared in a pink blouse and a dark dress pants, while Chad Bell wore his traditional white shirt and tie. The couple rarely looked at each other and their attorneys argued motions on their behalf. Now, cameras were not allowed in the hearing because Judge Boyce Completely gave in to the prosecution. So, no videos. Anyway, Lori and uh, Chad are charged with multiple counts of first degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder for the deaths of seven year old Joshua J.J. Vallow and 16 year old Tylie Ryan, two of Lori's children, along with Chad's previous wife, Tammy Day Bell. Now, Jim Archibald and John Thomas, who are Lori Vallow's court appointed attorneys, filed motions uh, this past month asking for permission for Ms. Vallow to meet in person and have a phone strategy session ahead of the April trial date. The two defendants would like to be able to talk about their settlement options, according to Mr. Archibald's pleading, noting that the prosecutors sent him a letter asking if Lori was interested in settling the case. We need to be able to talk settlement and plan strategy as we prepare for the settlement conference as we prepare for mediation. Mr. Archibald was asking for an order from the court and he would like to have that decided today. Well, Mr. Archibald said that Lori and Chad, along with their attorneys, would attend this meeting and a sheriff deputy could stand outside the door for security purposes. He requested regular conferences, which would not be recorded or used in court. Now, the Fremont County prosecuting attorney, Lindsey Blake, expressed significant concern over such an idea and she said that each defendant has an attorney client privilege with their respective counsel and they do not have the same privilege with their co-defendant's counsel. Yeah, unless of course there's a joint defense agreement, but nobody wants to talk about that. Anyway, she mentioned that if Chad said something incriminating in front of Lori's attorneys, they then become witnesses and are not protected by the attorney client privilege or you could always have your investigators sit there and if there's a witness statement that is made, then the investigators could testify and not the attorneys, duh. She also addressed settling the case. Quote, there can be no settlement conference if the state is not a party to that conference. The request is not to have the state present in these meetings, so there could not be a settlement negotiation unless the state is there, she argued. Well, sure they could, I mean, I don't know how they do things in Idaho where everybody sits around with their defendants there. Never done that. But um, let's face it, that's not just not gonna work. So Mr. Pryor, Chad's attorney, expressed support for the meeting but uh, took issue with the word strategizing. He said, quote, I'm not going to strategize with anybody. I'm going to present our defense in this case. Now. That's an end quote there. The uh, process is going to be trial prep. There's going to be no strategizing. This is trial prep, which is kind of synonymous with strategizing. Just saying. Anyway, uh, Judge Boyce said he understood the rationale for the request but explained it's an idea full of pitfalls that would far outweigh any consequences before he denied the motion. Now, prosecutors argued that the jury should be sequestered when the trial begins on April 3rd, up in Ada County, and the trial is scheduled to last for 10 weeks. The prosecution is worried, given the nature of this case, given the publicity, that if the court does not sequester the jury for the duration of the trial, there's going to be problems keeping the jury secure and making them have no contact with parties about the case. Now, the prosecutor acknowledged sequestering a jury is a costly hardship for jurors, but said the seriousness of the case requires it in this particular matter. She said, quote, this case involves the death of two children and the death of a mother of multiple children. If there are no safeguards provided to jurors, given the attention of some of the citizen journalists on this case, we have real concerns about the integrity of the case." End quote. So basically, she's blaming everyone out there except the press uh, for somehow that they're going to disrupt the jury process. Give the public a little more credit. Now I understand there's always somebody that's gonna be maybe do something stupid, but you know that could happen even if uh, the jury is sequestered. And that's expensive to house the jury for 10 weeks, feed them. Make sure they're not getting any newspapers if anybody reads newspapers. How are you gonna limit what shows up at their feeds on Facebook, Instagram, all that kind of stuff? It's called an instruction by the court, admonishing the jury not to read anything about this case if you're on the jury. You can't consider anything if you are on the jury that comes from any outside source, anything other than court. That's how the problem is solved. Now, Mr. Archibald noted that he would normally agree with sequestering a jury in a high-profile case, but the trial length worries him and therefore he is opposed to the motion. And having the jury sequestered for over two months, no contact with home, no contact with children, it's going to limit our jury pool, he argued. And our jury pool is going to consist of who? Retirees, nobody with a job, nobody with a business to run. As my professor in law school once said, ah, the citizen jury, 12 people good and true, otherwise unemployable. I'm going to give the uh, Idaho jurors more credit than that. I think that they will all take their jury duty very seriously, regardless whether they are unemployed or retired. But let's face it, probably not the ideal juror for the defense in this particular case. Anyway, Mr. Pryor also objected to sequestering the jury and argued that the Ada County and Fremont County Sheriff's Office could provide adequate security for the jurors. The only thing you're doing is stopping a bunch of jurors from reading the paper or getting on the internet. You can instruct them about that, judge. You don't need to lock up a jury for two months like prisoners, Mr. Pryor argued. I agree with Mr. Pryor, just saying. Judge Boyce said he understood the position of both sides, but denied the request to sequester the jury. He said, quote, I believe adequate steps can be put in place to not require sequestration during the course of the trial and that the court will take those steps very seriously, the judge concluded. And Mr. Pryor asked the judge to delay the trial until April of 2024, that's right, over a year, as he is awaiting potential DNA evidence from the Idaho State Lab that he worries will take time to get back. He stated, quote, "'There is no way that the DNA evidence will be done, "'and even if it is provided to me tomorrow, "'I am going to need a specific time "'to have my expert test it "'and make their own conclusions,' he argued. "'And if I don't get the evidence, mister Daybell is going to file "'an ineffective assistance counsel claim against him. "'And as much, I, like Chad, he's going to do it, "'and he won't hesitate to do it.' then this case will be turned over because I was not provided an adequate opportunity to prepare. Ah, yes, the old ineffective assistance of counsel argument that I have raised many a time for myself when I needed more time. Uh, the judge noted that, he gets it, and he's basically saying, Judge, my client's gonna say I was ineffective. So, the judge then inquired of the prosecutor, Ms. Lindsay Blake, is if there was any currently outstanding evidence that has not been disclosed, remember, we're talking three years now, and the prosecutor said that there was potential source of DNA evidence that was located, and that the state lab personnel does not believe through testing they are going to get any DNA back. It could be exculpatory. They simply don't know. The state lab was going to test those items, but were not hopeful they could get any DNA. Needless to say, the prosecutors objected to delaying the proceedings, and Judge Boyce said his hands were tied because the case is joined with two defendants, and one of them, Lori Vallow, has not waived her right to a speedy trial. He said the overarching concern is that one defendant, Mr. Daybell, is requesting to have it set another year out. The co-defendant has unequivocally asserted her right to a speedy trial, She has never equivocated at all about wanting things to go without delay. And the court said, I would be very concerned if I were to set a trial out for another year in April. That's right, speedy trial is a thing and the court must accommodate that request for a speedy trial. Ultimately, Judge Boyce denied the request to continue, but said he will not force Chad DeBell into a trial if he and his attorney, Mr. Pryor, have not had enough time to examine the evidence. So he said, quote, if we are on the eve of trial and the state has exculpatory evidence and did not provide Mr. Pryor enough time at that point, the case may be severed, end quote. So the judge is saying, hey there, uh, Miss Prosecutor, if you're going to test your evidence you better get it done you better get it done now and you better give it insufficient time otherwise that severance that you don't want you may just get it so be careful what you wish for you you delay testing dna this late in the game literally a couple months before trial very dangerous very very dangerous and as you may recall laurie ball's attorneys filed four motions asking judge boyce to take the death penalty off the table And Mr. Archibald acknowledged that the motions were routine in death penalty cases, as we've talked about, and admitted that they would really not get a whole lot of traction unless they were heard at the appellate court level. Still, he argued the death penalty is flawed, expensive, and it brings a bias to jury selection. Because as a death penalty lawyer, he's done many of these cases and we try to settle before we get to that point. He said some death penalty lawyers would say if you're already in trial, you've lost because the jury is prone to convict and simply give a death penalty because it is a death penalty case. Um, He he argues that the jury is basically given a license to kill. Mr. Archibald then went through the uh, eight cases where people are in death row in Idaho, one of who has been awaiting the death penalty for 30 years. He said the process was long, complicated, and rarely led to an actual execution. He says, why does Idaho seek to kill someone when they have no intention of carrying it out? He says their process is flawed, it's replete with mistakes, and the appeal process will go on forever if the state receives its wish of a death penalty. In this case, that's why he is asking the court to stop this nonsense now and rule that the capital punishment scheme is unconstitutional. Now, the prosecutors obviously objected to the idea of dropping the death penalty and said the prosecution's case will prove Lori Vallow intended for her children and Tammy Daybell to die. Judge Boyce said he would take the death penalty motions under advisement and issue a written order. Mr. Archibald, I know you submitted these kind of boilerplate motions, and I'm gonna go dig through the court's files and somewhere find a boilerplate answer so I can prepare the order in this particular case, um, because everybody knows it's simply not going to happen. Now, for those who are not familiar with the case, Chad Daybell and Lori Vallow, who are technically married, have pled not guilty to all charges. The next hearing that they are scheduled for is February 9th, February 9th of 2023. Now, Judge Boyce issued some pretty severe gag orders. In fact, they're so extreme, they've been sealed. So we can't even know what they can't talk about and mention in public. Um, and so there's a balancing between protecting the right to a fair trial for all parties involved and the right to free expression afforded under the United States Constitution. And so what the court has done in this particular case, and their order says as such, that they're attempting to preserve the right to a fair trial with some curtailment of the dissemination of information in this case and therefore they believe that they are authorized to do so. Therefore, based upon a stipulation, which simply means an agreement of all the parties, so the defense and the prosecution agreed and said there's good cause, and therefore the judge orders that the attorneys for any of the interested parties in this case, including the prosecuting attorney, defense attorney, and any attorney representing witness victim or victim's family, as well as the parties to the above titled action, including but not limited to investigators, law enforcement personnel and agents for the prosecuting attorney or defense attorney are prohibited from making extrajudicial statements written or oral concerning this case, except without additional comment, quotation from, or reference to the official public record of this case. And the court goes on and says that this order specifically prohibits any statement which a reasonable person would expect to be disseminated by means of public communication that relates to the following. Evidence regarding the occurrence or transactions involved in this case, the character, credibility, reputation, or criminal record of a party, victim, or witness, or the identity of a witness, or the expected testimony of a party, victim, or witness, the performance or result of any examination or test or the refusal or failure of a person to submit to an examination or test, any opinion as to the merits of the case or claims of defense of party, and any information lawyers know or reasonably should know is likely to be inadmissible as evidence in trial that would, if disclosed, create substantial risk of prejudicing an impartial trial." The court goes on and says, any information reasonably likely to interfere with fair trial in this case afforded under the United States Constitution, such as the existence or contents of any confession, admission, or statement given by the defendant, the possibility of a plea of guilt or an opinion as to the defendant's guilt or innocence. That just about covers anything. Now, I'm not going to throw any stones here, but you know, the anonymous sources that have been reporting to various magazines have been reported to be people associated with the case on the side of the prosecution. Nobody's saying the defense is out there trying to interfere uh, with the fair trial in this particular case. Now, that's all well and good, this order, but I guess it only matters if the court is going to enforce it. Who is going to enforce it? The prosecutor? What? Because somebody associated with the prosecution talks to reporters and says, hey, this is what took place? You really think they're going to do that and jeopardize their case? <laughs> I doubt it. So I would conti- I would expect that the leaks will continue. And guess what? It's not like you can go to the press and say, tell me the source of the information. You know, kind of privileged. So I wouldn't hold my breath on a whole lot of that. I don't think it's going to be the defense that's going to be leaking information in this particular case. So, the court says they're reaching this balance because of a couple of things. The first thing the court notes is the American Bar Association Rule 3.6 in the Idaho Professional Code equivalent of 3.6. that says, a lawyer who is participating or has participated in the investigation or litigation of a matter shall not make an extrajudicial statement that the lawyer knows or reasonably should know will be disseminated by means of public communication and will have a substantial likelihood of materially prejudicing a proceeding in the matter. The rule goes on and says, notwithstanding paragraph A, a lawyer may state the claim, offense or defense involved, except when prohibited by law, the identity of the persons involved, information contained in a public record, that an investigation of a matter is in progress, the scheduling or result of any step in litigation, and a request for assistance in obtaining evidence and information necessary thereto, a warning of danger concerning the behavior of a person involved, when there is a reason to believe that there exists the likelihood of substantial harm to an individual or to the public interest. And in criminal cases specifically, in addition to paragraphs one through six, the identity, residence, occupation, and family status of the accused shouldn't be talked about if the accused has not been apprehended, information necessary to aid in the apprehension of that person and the fact time and place of arrest, and the identity of investigations and arresting officers, agencies, and the length of the investigation. And notwithstanding paragraph A, a lawyer may make a statement that a reasonable lawyer would believe is required to protect a client from substantial undue prejudicial effect of recent publicity, not initiated by the lawyer or the lawyer's client. A statement made pursuant to this paragraph shall be limited to such information as is necessary to mitigate the recent adverse publicity. So basically, you have a right to defend yourself when it is false and adverse information going out there. And obviously, no lawyer associated in a firm or government agency with a lawyer subject to the paragraphs above shall make a statement prohibited by uh, these rules. Now, there's a couple of cases that the court relies upon. And I know this is kind of getting into the weeds, but you have to understand what the court is trying to do. So one of the cases where the court uh, cites involved a case where the defendant's uh, wife uh, was bludgeoned to death back in 1954. And from the outset, officials focused suspicion on the petitioner who was arrested on a murder charge on July 30th and indicted on August 17th. His trial began on October 18th, and terminated with his conviction. Could you imagine starting a trial that quickly? God, the good old days. Anyway, so back in December 1st of t- 1954, during the entire pretrial period, virulent and incriminating publicity about the uh, defendant and the murder made the case notorious, and the news media frequently aired charges and countercharges besides those for which the defendant was tried. Three months before the trial, He was examined for more than five hours without an attorney in a televised three-day inquest conducted before an audience of several hundred spectators in a gymnasium. Over three weeks before trial, the newspapers published the names and addresses of prospective jurors, causing them to receive letters and telephone calls about the case. The trial began two weeks before, obviously, a very contested election at which the chief prosecutor and the trial judge were candidates for the judgeship. Now, newsmen were allowed to take over almost the entire uh, courtroom, hounding the defendant and most of the participants. 20 reporters were assigned seats by the court within the uh, bar and in close proximity to the jury and counsel, precluding privacy between the defendant and his counsel. The movement of the reporters in the courtroom apparently caused frequent confusion and disruption in the trial, in the corridors and elsewhere in and around the courthouse that they were allowed to basically roam freely, and it was all allowed by the judge. A broadcast station was assigned space next to the jury room, and before the jurors began deliberating, they were not sequestered and had access to all the news media through the court made suggestion and request that the jurors not expose themselves to comments about the case." The trial judge announced that neither he nor anyone else could restrict the prejudicial news accounts. Despite his awareness of the excessive pretrial publicity, the trial judge failed to take effective measures against the massive publicity, which continued throughout the trial and did not take adequate steps to control the conduct of the trial. So the defendant filed his petition and the case went all the way to the United States Supreme Court. The United States Supreme Court held that the massive, pervasive, and prejudicial publicity attending the defendant's prosecution prevented him from receiving a fair trial consistent with the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. Now, although freedom of discussion should be given the widest range compatible with the fair and orderly administration of justice, it must not be allowed to divert a trial from its purpose of adjudicating controversies according to legal procedures based on evidence received only in open court. Identifiable prejudice to the defendant need not be shown if the totality of these circumstances raises the probability of prejudice. The trial court failed to invoke procedures which would have guaranteed the defendant a fair trial, such as adopting stricter rules for use of the courtroom by the the, uh, media, as well as the defendant's counsel requesting limiting their number and more closely supervising their conduct in the courtroom. The court should also have insulated the witnesses, controlled the release of leads, information and gossip to the press by police officers, witnesses and counsel, prescribed extrajudicial statements by lawyers, witnesses, parties or court officials, divulging prejudicial matters and requesting the appropriate city and county officials to regulate release of the information. Guess what? The defendant got a whole new trial. And I know that was a lot of information, but I think you have to see what the court is trying to do in light of protecting the First Amendment, as well as protecting the defendant's right to a fair trial under the Sixth Amendment to the United States Constitution. So they're trying to narrowly tailor these restrictions that they think have been okayed by the United States Supreme Court uh, without crossing that line. Um, I personally think that uh, it's prior restraint, particularly in the Lori Vallow, Chad Bell matter, and it's a little better so far, but we're early on in the Koberger matter, but I don't know what it is with Idaho. I'm pretty much a free speech absolutist. Um, you can't go around spreading false information, you know, the whole disinformation. Uh, And if you think that this disinformation, then present the real facts. Let's get the real facts out there. Like I said, a jury will be selected and the jury can only make their mind up as it relates to evidence that was presented in court, not what is going on in the news media or the circus outside. It just doesn't matter. And so the courts, the prosecutors, everybody, don't treat the public stupid because we are not. And um, like I said, it only matters what is legally presented in court. That's all the jury can make their mind upon and juries take their jobs very, very seriously. So I know that was a lot of information, but I think, you know, you could skip through it if you didn't like it. But the reality of it is, is it explains how we got there. We have an example of a court allowing the complete circus to take place. It violated the defendant's Sixth Amendment right to a fair trial. We have another extreme where the court said nobody could publish anything about the case, and the court said prior restraint. In both cases, guess what? The defendants got a new trial. So interesting, interesting, complicated area for the judges involved, and you never know until it's over whether you made the right decision, and maybe not even when it's over, like years down the way. Okay, now here's some more of the uh, tabloid news, so to speak, and you can't really say what it is, but apparently, Brian Koberger dined at a Greek restaurant where two of the students, he is accused of killing, worked as a waitress. That's right, Madison Mogan and Zena Karnodal who obviously were stabbed to death at their home off campus in November, also worked at the Mad Greek restaurant in Moscow, Idaho for years. Now a former employee, unidentified of course, has revealed that Mr. Koberger, who obviously was charged with the killing, has visited the restaurants in the run-up to the deaths at least twice and ate vegan pizza. Can you imagine somebody traveling from his residence roughly 10 to 12 miles away, where vegan pizza is available, and eating at a vegan restaurant. Can you imagine such a thing? I could not imagine. And apparently, you know, people are maybe trying to suggest that this was part of the stocking that was allegedly taking place by Mr. Koberger, as has been alluded to, by unidentified sources from the prosecution. And even the former employee who's been unidentified said, yeah, I mean, even the visit, I mean, there was nothing suspicious about it. Um, But he wanted to make sure that we didn't uh, use any animal products that might have come in contact with his food. Like I said, oh my gosh, a strict vegan, somebody that can't eat gluten. Guess what? Every now and then I ask people, I said, are you sure it's gluten free? So that goes into the let's get real people. And sometimes we just have to wait for good news to come out good facts to come out. Let's not go make up ridiculous facts. Just saying, but I think I had to throw that in there. Come on, people, we can do better than that. Next on the docket, Alec Baldwin. Should he be held responsible? Well, he put out a statement through his attorney and says that this decision distorts Helena Hutchinson's tragic death and represents a terrible miscarriage of justice. Mr. Baldwin had no reason to believe that there was a live bullet in the gun or anywhere on that movie set, and he relied on the professionals with whom he worked who assured him the gun did not have live rounds. We will fight these charges and we will win. And he may just prevail, but let's talk about it. So obviously in the months since the 2021 shooting, Baldwin has given numerous self-serving interviews, and in none of them does he begin to suspect that perhaps as the man who pulled the trigger, He is the one who is to blame for her death. So despite the charges and the fact that he pulled the trigger, he's continued to toss culpability to anyone but himself. Mr. Baldwin has blamed the armorer, other producers, literally anyone he could think of other than himself. He even told George Stephanopoulos uh, in that cringeworthy interview that he was loving the process of making the film, of which he was not only the star but the producer, and then this gun thing goes off ruining everything, but guns don't go off by themselves, do they? Someone is responsible for what happened, and you can only uh, wonder why Mr. Baldwin was saying it wasn't him. Well, Mr. Baldwin uh, has said that uh, he was committed to doing anything that will take us to a place where this is less likely to happen again, and when he spoke to CNN back in August, he blamed uh, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, the rust armorer, who obviously is also facing involuntary manslaughter charges from the Santa Fe District Attorney. Um, someone put a live bullet in the gun who should have known better. That wasn't his job, he said. It was Gutierrez Reed's job. There are two people who didn't do what they were supposed to do, he said. Neither of them was him. And I'm not sitting there saying I want them to go you know, to prison or I want their lives to be hell. I don't want that, but I want everybody to know that the person who these two people are responsible for what happened. So Mr. Baldwin obviously has more than likely is going to enter a plea of not guilty when he appears in court. You know, He'll go through the booking process, get his fingerprints done, all that good stuff um, that comes with anybody that's facing felony charges. And he certainly has a right to make the government prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. Could he win? Absolutely. This is charged as an involuntary manslaughter case, which is basically negligent homicide. We talked about this yesterday. The question is, is it reasonably foreseeable? He is going to say, hey, I was handed the gun. I was told that it was a cold gun and I proceeded. Is that reasonably foreseeable that he should anticipate a safe gun that was not, you know, had a firearm or had a bullet in the firearm? I think one could make a straight faced argument for that. One will also argue, and I'm sure the district attorney will argue this. And you know, as you may recall in that cringe word of the interview with George Stephanopoulos, Alec Baldwin said, The gun just went off. We've explained that this gun did not just go off. And I know there's some people out there saying this gun could possibly go off. But guess what? It's not the gun that they were looking at. It's the one that the FBI looked at. And they said it didn't just go off. You had to actually pull the trigger, but it was a properly functioning firearm. So, Mr. Baldwin has to explain away that. He has to explain away, it's everybody else's fault but mine. And guess what? Even if the gun did go off, just went off, the prosecution's gonna say, don't really care. You know why? Because it was a real firearm. It was not a pretend gun. It was not a Nerf gun. And you handling a firearm need to follow the simple safety rules. It's not a statute anywhere, but basically anybody knows with any kind of gun safety that you are responsible for what takes place when you have that firearm. And you must always treat it as loaded. I assure you, when everybody hands me a firearm, whether they say it's safe or not, I always make sure that it is safe. It's just what you do. You don't point at anything you don't intend to shoot. And so, even if Alec Baldwin says it's everybody else's fault and the gun just went off, the prosecution's gonna say, don't care. You were still negligent in failing to check to see if that firearm was loaded. Now you say me, hey, Scott, how do you know this? I've done this trial, lost it too. It came back, criminally negligent homicide. Even with an expert testifying regarding the particular firearm meta issues that um, it could have malfunctioned, and there's a history of that particular firearm malfunctioning, mostly police officers' firearms, the jury was like, don't care. Firearm safety rules. Always treat the firearm as loaded. Never point at anyone you don't intend to shoot. It's that simple. Could it go either way? Absolutely. You know what's it's gonna depend upon? If Alec Baldwin goes to trial and whether he gets a good jury. Maybe they like him, maybe they're starstruck by him. He may want to consider though, if he can get out with a disposition that does not involve prison or jail, maybe no felony conviction, maybe some useful public service, pay a fine, jump all over it and move on. And finally on the docket, our dumb criminal of the day. Please meet Carmela Ann Manis. She was busted on a uh, warrant, charging her for failure to appear in court with connection to an alleged theft at Walmart last year. While Ms. Mannis was being processed into the county jail, a booking officer observed an anomaly after the inmate passed through a full body scanner. During the subsequent strip search, the um, deputies reported a glass pipe was protruding from the defendant's intimate areas. Mannis removed the pipe from her body, threw it to the ground, and stepped on it in an effort to destroy the evidence, just like our dumb criminal yesterday. Well, needless to say, Miss Madison attempted to explain away the glass pipe as a, uh, you know, it's just a sex toy. And the uh, deputy noted that um, the uh, pipe remnants had uh, burnt markings and was consistent with a pipe commonly used to smoke crack or meth. Well, Miss Manis was charged with introduction of contraband into a detention facility and tampering with evidence because she, you know, tried to destroy it. Guess what? Those are both felonies. They take those pretty serious, I assure you. Well, she remains in custody, being unable to make the thirty-five hundred dollar bond. Miss Manis, you are a dumb criminal of the day because you know before they start sending you through those strip searches and you go through that uh, little body scanner, you know what happens? There's signs everywhere that you see, they advise you. If you have any contraband, let us know now. We'll kind of give you some amnesty, so to speak. But when you go that route, uh, yeah, it's a crime. And what do you think? You were gonna smoke crack in custody? And you couldn't just put it in your pocket? No? Miss Manis, you are a dumb criminal of the day. All right, thanks for watching, everybody. Hope you have a wonderful weekend. We'll see you next time on Crime Talk.